Well, good evening. Whoa, wow. Everybody calm down. How are we doing tonight? Great. That's great. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Uh, Barry, you should have just kept going with Psalm 19. We're in the Psalms for the next 45 minutes, so you should have just given an exposition on Psalm 19 and we would be done for the night. As someone asked me earlier if we were, or what we were studying tonight, and I said the Psalms, and they responded, all of them? No, we will not be studying all 150 Psalms, but we will continue our Route 66 series tonight in the book of Psalms. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to actually turn to Exodus 20 to begin, and then we'll get to the book of Psalms. So take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus 20, and that's where we will begin. Well, as you know, Exodus 20 describes uh, the interaction between God and Moses on Mount Sinai, and it is there in that wonderful chapter uh, where God gives Moses uh, the Ten Commandments. Well, it is my conviction that uh, the second of those Ten Commandments is the most under, or misunderstood, rather, uh, therefore the most neglected of the Ten Commandments. That's the second commandment. Well, let's read it together in Exodus 20. Look at verse 4. God says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So at its heart, at its core, uh, the second commandment describes how God is to be worshipped. If you step back and look at that commandment sort of uh, holistically, you'll land on the principle that that commandment teaches that God must be worshipped in specific ways according to exactly what he has uh, prescribed. Uh, that commandment isn't merely talking about and prohibiting the, the construction of an idol, although it does do that. Please do not construct, build, or erect an idol physically anywhere. The commandment does speak to that. But the primary principle there is that God will not tolerate worship that is contrary to what he has revealed in his word. So the first commandment, worship God. The second commandment, this is how you worship God. And it must be done in accordance with what he has revealed. Unfortunately, we see throughout our culture and our world, as it relates to the professing Christian world, is the second commandment seems to altogether be ignored. If you were to examine uh, the modern-day charismatic movement, uh, the modern-day Pentecostal movement, uh, the new apostolic reformation, that whole realm of uh, professing Christianity... Uh, they will talk about worship. Uh, they will sing songs that are pawned off as worship. 
But in reality, what they are doing doesn't fall in accordance with the second commandment. It's because the theology that undergirds that movement and those songs cannot be found in Scripture. In 2013, statistics noted that there were over 500 million people that were locked into that movement uh, that promotes something that's contrary to the second commandment. And recent studies have shown that that movement has grown from 500 million people worldwide to almost 650 million people worldwide. However, in God's providence, and what is sorely missing and lacking in that movement, is an understanding of the book of Psalms. In fact, the book of Psalms lays out for us how God is to be rightly praised and how God is to be rightly worshipped. So when we think of that in conjunction with the second commandment, in order for us to be able to worship and honor and praise our God in a way that is acceptable to him, we find a pattern for that laid out in the Psalms. The late R.C. Sproul, commenting on the importance of the Psalms, he has said, It has been said by church historians that in those periods of Christian history where renewal, revival, and awakening took place, and the church was at its strongest, that coincidental with those periods in church history, there was a strong focus on the Psalms in the life of God's people, particularly in the worship of God's people. So Sproul argues that if you examine church history and you look back at the great revivals and the great renewals that have stood the test of time, there you will find the book of Psalms. And you will see the book of Psalms elevated as the foundation for worship. Bernard Cotret Speaking of the French Calvinists, was the French Reformation. So he doesn't attribute the Reformation in the French setting, in that culture, he doesn't attribute it to one man, he attributes it to the Psalms. He says it was the Psalms that took the Saying the Psalms as they they were martyred, as they were put to their death. So when you examine the book of Psalms, not only does it have a long history in terms of the Old Testament, but it has a long history as it relates to the church that we are a part of as those who have been redeemed by the, the blood of Christ. But we have to ask, Is the book of Psalms a book of the past? Is there anything in the Psalms for us to glean and grasp in 2000, 
23? I think that's a valid question. Of course, I think we know the answer to it. The Psalms are a bridge for your communion with and the worship of God. Let me repeat that. The Psalms are the bridge for your communion with and the worship of God. And I don't want us to think about this merely in terms of music, although we should, it's, it's the Psalms. But I want us to think about this as it relates to all of our lives, as it relates to your life. The book of Psalms is the bridge. It's, it's the stepping stone. It's the connecting point between you and the Almighty God. Your communion, your relationship with Him, and your worship of Him. Well, tonight as we continue our Route 66 series, we're going to focus on the Psalter, the book of Psalms, and we're going to do this together in order to compel us to commune with and worship God. And not to do it in what we see to be fit in our own eyes and in our own mind, but to do it as is revealed and prescribed in the Psalms. Now, as I grappled with how, how to deal with so much material, 150 Psalms, how I grappled with how to present this book, I, I really landed on three categories. So let me give you a preview of where we're going and then we'll go there. So the book of Psalms and its world for tonight, we're going to look at the structure of the Psalms, the theology of the Psalms, and then uh, the appropriation of the Psalms. I think in the time that we have allotted this evening, we'll be able to work through these three categories and sort of work through a slow build to compel you, practically speaking, to not only embrace the Psalms as the bridge between you and God, but compel you to consistently read, study, meditate, and live the Psalms. That's what we'll talk about in the appropriation section. So let's begin tonight with the first category. Let's look at the structure of the Psalms. The structure of the Psalms. Uh, first off, let's examine the title. The title of the book in Hebrew is Tehillim which simply means praises, praises. Uh, the title of the book in Greek, or the Septuagint, is psalmoi, and means songs to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. I don't necessarily think that you'll remember those particular definitions, but the idea here, based on Hebrew and Greek and the way those words are used, are to the Almighty God. You can even see with the spelling there of the Greek uh, where we get the English word Psalms. About 500 years after the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, completed in 404 AD, titles uh, this book the Psalmus, or the Psalterium, and you can see that there on the slide. And those words simply mean the music of a stringed instrument or a song of praise. So you can 
sort of marinate on those words and those definitions, and that will give you really the overarching picture of what you find right in the middle of your Bible with the Psalms. So the book of Psalms is a collection of songs. It's a collection of prayers. And this collection of prayers is thematically diverse, and it covers a wide range of topics and themes. And you understand that. You're familiar with that. Next, we can look at the authors of the Psalms. Of course, there is one divine author, uh, the Holy Spirit. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that would be true of the Psalms as well. Uh, But the Psalms have been recognized, and the evidence for this is crystal clear, to have been written by at least eight different people. Eight different people. And you can see the list of the different men that have contributed to this large work. Of course, you can note down there at the the bottom point that there are uh, several dozen uh, psalms that are anonymous. We don't know who actually authored it, humanly speaking, of course, and we know it to be divine as it has been part of the collection of psalms now uh, for centuries. Now, in terms of the structure of the Psalms and the date, the book of Psalms, the earliest Psalm was written by Moses, Psalm 90, around 1400 BC. And then the latest or the last Psalm was either Psalm 126 or 137 that was written around 500 BC. So Spanning from the first psalm chronologically to the last psalm, we've got roughly 1,000 years. I mean, that's amazing to think about over a 1,000-year period. um, Over eight different authors wrote psalms, and then during that 1,000-year period, those psalms were slowly collected, and they were progressively organized bringing about the psalms that are sitting in your lap or on your phone. Those same psalms, Psalm 90 that Moses wrote so many centuries ago is there in uh, your Bible. As it relates to the canonical arrangement, of course, if you were to line the Hebrew Scripture and the English Bible, the table of contents next to one another, the Hebrew Scripture would be included in the writings, which is the third section of the Hebrew Bible. Of course, that would be different in terms of table of contents or sections in the English Bible. It would be part of the poetical books you see there in the middle of your Bible. Turn over real quick to Luke chapter 24. Let's jump to the New Testament real quick and let me show you Jesus' own affirmation of the Psalms. And we'll come back to this. Uh, at the end of the message in the appropriation section. But let me show you uh, Luke chapter 24. This, of course, is post-resurrection. Jesus has resurrected from the grave. He has made several appearances uh, after he has resurrected, the road to Emmaus there at the beginning of chapter 24. Uh, But then you go to really the end of chapter 24. Look down at verse 44. Jesus speaking to his disciples uh, the 11, uh, notice here he gives a threefold division of the Old Testament at the end of verse 44, the law of Moses, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
the Psalms. So the Psalms were part of the Hebrew Scripture that Jesus was extremely familiar with in the first century. So much so that he even identifies the Psalms as part of that threefold division uh, that was part of ancient Israel. Now let's go back to Psalms, look back to the Old Testament here. Uh, let's look at how the Psalm, Psalms are divided. Let's look at how the Psalms are divided. Well, there are 150 Psalms in Psalms, and they are broken down into five books. They're broken down into five different books. Now, it's possible that these five books are structured in a way that lines up with the Pentateuch, with Moses' writings. It's possible. There's been a lot of scholarship done on this. If you would like a homework assignment for this week, go home and research this. Is there a correlation between Moses' five books, the Pentateuch, and the five books of the Psalms? Now, scholars aren't exactly sure. We have to be honest with this. Scholars aren't exactly sure how the book came to be structured this way. But the structure itself demands that the Psalms were written, collected, and arranged with an intent and purpose. Turn to Psalm 41. Let me show you just a couple examples of this. And uh, my primary reason for doing this is to show you the intentionality of the organization of the Psalms. Even though we don't know exactly why and the primary reasons that the Psalms are structured in the way that they are, we can tell from the end of each one of these five books, because of the doxology that is given, that a particular structure was in view when these psalms were being collected over 1,000 years. If you look at Psalm 41, verse 13, notice it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Uh, this is a doxology. This is sort of putting an exclamation point at the end of this first book in Psalms. Turn over to Psalm 72. Turn over to Psalm 72. Here we'll find the end of book two. And again, I'm just trying to highlight the fact that uh, these books were organized in a very specific manner. Uh, 72, let's look down at verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So again, another doxology concluding this second book. Now you can find another one in 89.52. You can find uh, the fourth major doxology in 106.48. But let's turn to the last one at the very end, Psalm 150. Go to Psalm 150. If you go to Psalm 150, verse 6, and this is such a fitting end. This doxology is such a fitting end to all of the Psalms. Notice verse 6, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then it's repeated again, praise the Lord. So it's best to understand these five books that comprise the 150 Psalms 
to represent smaller collections that the nation of Israel, that the people of God collected through the years. We have to understand that the Psalms didn't come into being. They didn't come in uh, to fruition overnight, but it was a slow, methodical writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was ultimately collected and preserved through the years. Now that is a 30,000 foot flyover of the structure of the Psalms. Of course, if you want more homework this week, you can invest more time into looking at the structure because there is a lot more there than we briefly touched on. But I want to spend more time here not just looking at the structure of the Psalms, but the second category, uh, the theology of the Psalms. The theology of the Psalms, or, or you could even say the doctrine of the Psalms. So my goal and aim in, in this section isn't to work through all 150 Psalms, but to draw out and uh, highlight uh, the main themes or the main doctrines that are uh, covered. Uh, so the first one, uh, we could title hymns, hymns. Now I'll place this one first because all of the Psalms are essentially hymns. All of the Psalms are praise. They're hymns of praise. And this reality undergirds and supports the entire book. So if you don't get this first point, you really won't get the rest of the Psalms, so if you've been zoned out there on the structure of the Psalms, come back with me here to the theology of the Psalms and understand this first point about hymns or about praise. The Psalms are the prayer and praise book of God's people. Let me say that again. The Psalms are the prayer and praise book of God's people. This is true. For you individually. And this is also true of us corporately, collectively. The Psalms are intended to be a prayer and praise book. They are supernatural, divinely inspired record that informs the reader, which would be us, how we are to praise and to pray to God. The Psalms get you to God. That's their primary function. A fourth century pastor theologian by the name of Athanasius, uh, he says that the Psalms speak for us. Donald Whitney in his book on praying the Bible, he says that God gave the Psalms so that we would give the Psalms back to God. That's such a great practical understanding of the book of Psalms. God gave us the Psalms so we would be able to speak or sing or chant or pray the words back to Him. Now, have any of us in here ever struggled like in your prayer life on what to say? Is it it's just me? Come on, guys. Yeah. The, the Psalms are meant to be read and they're meant to be prayed. This, this ought to be encouraging if you're having one of those mornings or you're having one of those afternoons or those evenings where you want to go to the Lord in prayer and the words, for whatever reason, and there might be many reasons, aren't necessarily coming to you, you can go to the Psalms and you can 
read the Psalms and you can pray the Psalms, uh, the Psalms can do the speaking for you, if, if you will. Now, for most of my life, I played basketball. Seminary has destroyed that reality. I have lost all my athleticism due to seminary, and it's okay. I'm right with the Lord, so I can press on. But growing up playing basketball, growing up underneath my dad, who has been coaching now for over uh, 40 years, I know what it means to have playbooks and scouting reports and to watch game film and to put in all of that extra work as a player and also as a coach to get ready for the game. I mean, you put together playbooks and watch film and all of those things even for practice. That used to drive me nuts playing in college. After practice, we would go into the locker room and then watch practice that we just had for hours. <laughs> I didn't think it was ever going to end. And we studied the film, and then we would put together game plans and all of these things in preparation for the game, in preparation to go out and play. The book of Psalms, is, it's a divine playbook. It's, it's literally God's words to us laying out for us how we are to get in the game. How, how we are to commune with God, how we are to have a relationship with God. Now, there's a couple examples that we could turn to to understand this hymn idea and the fact that these are praises to God, but I think one that would be helpful, at least here initially, would be Psalm 33. So turn to Psalm 33 with me. Psalm 33 is an example of a praise song. It's a hymn of praise. It's, it's a psalm that calls God's people to praise him. And it calls, it calls God's people to praise him for uh, defeating their enemies. It's a victory hymn, some people have said. But I, but I want you to notice the praise that is spoken here in verse 1 through 4. Sing for joy in the Lord. O you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now this is just one hymn of praise. Now, this is just one victory hymn, but what you find throughout the Psalter is several psalms that elevate or highlight the fact of an event that has transpired and the result of that event or the consequence of that event are God's people lifting up praises to him. So you have hymns of praise. You also have hymns of thanksgiving. And these psalms are exactly as you would expect them to be. Uh, God's people showing how grateful they are. God's people giving thanks. God's people expressing gratitude uh, for what He has done. And it could be in any given situation. Now, this is true in your life. 
whenever you would like to express your gratitude to God for really an innumerable amount of reasons, you can go to a thanksgiving psalm, you can read that psalm, and you can pray that psalm. And you may be expressing gratitude for a number of realities. It could be forgiveness of sins, asking for daily forgiveness of sins. Although you've been made right with Christ and you have forgiveness of sins, past, present, future, we are called to still go to God and ask forgiveness. You could do this for deliverance or for rescue if you're in persecution or you're in trials or difficulties. You go to God giving him thanks. Maybe you can think about prayers that you've offered up in your life, prayers that you've offered up in the past, over the past few months or even the past few years. And then God, in his due time, he answers that prayer. It's a reason to go to the Psalms and offer him thanksgiving. Turn over to Psalm 65. Psalm 65 is a psalm that thanks God for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you could sit at the foot of your bed tonight and read Psalm 65, offer this psalm as a prayer to God in confession of your sins, knowing full well that he will forgive you of your sins. Notice verse 1, There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. Again, the Psalms of Thanksgiving, this one in particular, as it relates to the forgiveness of sins, the psalmist is expressing what he finds to be true about God, and that is he will forgive iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Next, you'll find in the Psalms, wisdom psalms. How to live life God's way. How to think. How to act. How to react. How you should respond as one who has confessed Christ. How do you respond biblically to whatever situation has been given to you and to whatever you face in this life? I, I don't know everyone in this room but you may be going through difficulties. The book of Psalms presents a world that will enable you to respond to that difficulty appropriately, biblically, godly, with Christ-likeness. True wisdom comes from the one who is wisdom. There's a variety of Psalms that are classified as wisdom psalms and that will do this for you in this life. There's also lament psalms where the psalmist or God's people are expressing grief. They're expressing sorrow. In biblical times, they were dealing with famine, sickness, perils, dangers, enemies, tribulations, trials, the people of God cry out to God during these times, knowing that he is their only refuge, their only strength, their only rescue, the only deliverer. In fact, turn over to Psalm 44. 
Now, we get a great picture here in Psalm 44 of God's people crying out to him to be rescued from their enemies. Psalm 44, drop down to verse 23. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. So the people are crying out to God. God, please respond. Please respond to the situation I am in. Verse 24, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. I mean, notice here the depth at which the psalmist is describing the turmoil and the affliction and the oppression that they're facing. Look at verse 25 again. Our soul has sunk down into the dust. Uh, Not just laying on the dust, becoming part of the dust. Our body cleaves or clings to the earth. Maybe you can think back to some of the low points that you've had in your life where you feel as if you were right here in Psalm 44 where you have sunk down to be part of the dust. You are clinging to the dust You feel as if you can't go on anymore. The Psalms are begging you to come to them to be able to express that to God. To request that God redeem you, to bring you up out of the pit. Well, those are lament Psalms. There are also royal and enthronement Psalms. Psalms that describe God as king, God as ruler, ruler of the universe. Psalms that depict God's victory, his triumph, his grand achievement. You may think of a psalm like Psalm 2, a coronation psalm, an enthronement psalm. It was likely used in biblical history in conjunction with the inauguration of the Davidic kings. It was probably read out loud at those kings' coronations. It would have been sung by choirs at that time. Psalm 2 is also a messianic psalm. It pictures one of David's sons reigning and ruling the world. The Psalms also give us eschatological Psalms, Psalms that depict the future rule and reign of Christ, Psalm 2, Psalms that depict the second coming of Christ, Psalm 110. The Psalms also give us Christological Psalms. Now, you have to be careful when you get to this category of Psalms to not read Christ onto every single Psalm. There are psalms that do talk about Christ, and it's right that we affirm that. Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 16 describes the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 110 describes the priesthood of Christ, the dominion of Christ, the kingliness of Christ. 
Now, don't miss this as we wrap up this theological section. The theology of the Psalms. All these categories and the Psalms and the verses that comprise them, they are meant to be read, understood, applied, prayed, and sung. In other words, as we look through those theology or those theological categories in the Psalms, they aren't merely to be head knowledge. They aren't presented there and placed there so you can accrue only knowledge about God, although you should. And that is partly what they are there for. But these Psalms ultimately are to take us into this third and final category. And that's what I've titled appropriation. The appropriation of the Psalms. It starts with the theology. It starts with the doctrine. It starts with the reading of those Psalms. And then it moves to the appropriation. How can I take what I know to be true and live it? Now you'll notice here that I use the word appropriation rather than application. What often happens when we think of application, and this is fine, so this isn't a knock on application. When we think of application, we think of the one or two things that we can go and do like tonight when we leave here or the one or two things that we can do for the rest of the week. And we, we should do that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I hope that you can grab one or two points from the message tonight. And I mean, you can apply that as you're walking out to your car and as you are going about the, the rest of your week. But when I'm talking about appropriation, I'm talking about having the, the book of Psalms, have it, to have it mapped onto your life. To, to have the Psalms wrapped over who you are. In fact, appropriation it simply means the act of taking something and making use of it. Take the Psalms and map them onto your life. Uh, they are the lens in which you see everything. Let me say it this way. Take the Psalms tonight from here on out, and you may already be doing this, and praise God. But take the Psalms and let the Psalms build your biblical worldview. You see everything in this world through the lens of the Psalms. This is like for you guys uh, that wear glasses or when you put on sunglasses, right? We understand those things. You, you, you are seeing your vision is looking through those lenses. Everything that you perceive is based on the glasses that you're wearing or the sunglasses that you put on. The, the same would be true about the appropriation of the Psalms. Take the Psalms and let everything about them be the lens in which you see this life. Augustine says of the Psalms that the Psalms are an antidote for the pride of humanity. You want to crush pride in your life? Appropriate the Psalms to your life. If you want to rid yourself of 
being entangled in sin map the Psalms onto your life. In fact, one scholar says, one looks into a physical mirror to see how one is doing on the outside. When one reads a Psalm like a mirror, identifying with the psalmist, then one discovers how one is doing on the inside. Did anybody look in a mirror today to check your physical appearance? If you didn't, I'm suggesting at least one look before you leave the house just to make sure everything's good. That's what the Psalms are for our soul. If we will peer into the Psalms, it will open up our soul. Very practical. Now, quickly, in the time that we have left, let's look at the appropriation of Psalms beginning here in Old Testament worship. Old Testament worship. The book of Psalms, as we've mentioned, is a collection of prayers and praises and meditations that ancient Israel used and set in poetic form to be able to worship God individually and corporately. Old Testament Israel's worship was almost always corporate or communal. And Jewish sources tell us that the Psalms were highly regarded and used in the life of ancient Israel. It's critical that we understand that the Psalms played a major role in the life of the nation. Again, more homework for you this week. You can go home and discover the vital role that the Psalms played in Old Testament worship. They were also appropriated in the life of Jesus. The four Gospels tell us that Jesus weekly participated in the synagogues, which means, listen to this, that Jesus would have read, sung, and prayed the Psalms. That's what was going on in the synagogues in the first century, and Jesus was part of it weekly. At the end of his life on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus' life, he appropriated the Psalms to every aspect of his life. In fact, in the text that we looked at in Luke 24.44, Jesus says that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were about him. We're about him. So Jesus appropriated the Psalms. Next, the apostles did. In Acts 1, when the apostles replaced Judas with Matthias, they cite Psalm 69. In Acts 2, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, he cites Psalm 16. In Romans 3, Paul strings together a series of Old Testament quotes to talk about the depravity of man. In Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews strings together seven Old Testament quotes to talk about the deity of Christ. In the book of Revelation, even, John quotes from Psalm 2, verse 9. In fact, I love this. If you take the first book of the New Testament, chronologically speaking, James, 
written around A.D. 46, and you take the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John, written around A.D. 95, both of them, James 5 and Revelation 2, mention the Psalms. You can say the entire New Testament, chronologically speaking, is bookended by a reference to the Psalms. The New Testament church and the New Testament believers also appropriated the Psalms. And just some quick references for you to jot down. In Acts chapter 4, God's people gathered together and they prayed Psalm 146. In Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, Paul commands the churches to sing the Psalms. By default, that also means not only to sing the Psalms, but to pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul affirms the use of Psalms in corporate worship. And in James chapter 5, verse 13, James urges for the Psalms to be used at all times. At all times. Now in the post-apostolic church, so now we've moved out of the first century and we're into the second century, did God's people appropriate the Psalms? Well, they absolutely did. You can go look back in those early centuries of the church after the apostles and all of the writings that have been discovered from the early church fathers. They lean heavily on the Psalms. And not just bits and pieces of the Psalms, full-blown commentaries and expositions on the Psalms. They knew and understood and valued the Psalms because they understood it to be the bridge to God. Now, what about today? And this is where we'll end. What about today? What are we supposed to do with the Psalms? Uh, Brothers and sisters, I I would submit to you that what we are to do with the Psalms is no different than these groups that we just mentioned here. When they read the Psalms, they would read them individually if they had a copy of the Scripture. They would read them corporately. They would understand the Psalms. They would be taught the Psalms. They would meditate on the Psalms. They would sing the Psalms. Maybe we should bring back some chanting of the Psalms. It's really what they did in the Old Testament. They they chanted the Psalms. They prayed the Psalms individually, corporately. Now, brothers and sisters, here's what I want us to see. They appropriated their Psalms where the Psalms had completely overtaken their life. Their life was governed by the theology of the Psalms, the God of the Psalms, and the fact that they knew that the Psalms were the channel. They were the path. They were the way to communing and worshiping God.
I've already quoted from Athanasius, a fourth century theologian, but let me end our time by quoting from him again. He says, I believe that a man can find nothing more glorious than these psalms, for they embrace the whole life of man, the affections of his mind, and the emotions of his soul. To praise and glorify God, he can select a psalm suited to every occasion, and thus will find that they were written for him. That's my encouragement. That's our goal as we leave here tonight, to not merely know the Psalms, but to appropriate the Psalms, where it will govern our lives to be able to commune with God and to worship our God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the Psalms and the fact that they lay out a a pattern, a divine pattern of how we are to commune and worship you. God, may we run to them. May we allow the Psalms to be a mirror into our own soul. And may we allow the Psalms to be a channel for us to worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.